Welcome to the closet. My name is Adam, resident gay. In the closet, we live, grow, and learn. It's a shared space for every queer person to explore, creating a unique journey for each of us. But it all starts with knowing that you are different. Okay, well, I was born in, in London, England uh, in 1950, so that makes me in my 70s now. So a lot of my life experiences in the early days was, was prior to the new generation of openness and uh, acceptance. I knew that I was gay prior to puberty. And I had no problems with that because it was just the way I was. And it was the way I, I am. I knew I was different and I knew what I fantasized about and I knew what I wanted to experience. And I probably started really early uh, with my school boyfriends in my very early teens. It was something that we kept very secret and it was just fun. And so this, I think this probably started in 1963. Believe it or not, when I was 13 years of age, I used to take boys home. My mother used to work. So there was a period after school until they came home. And uh, we used to play around. But everything was very secret. But I was never concerned about it. I just didn't talk about it. And people people didn't talk about it either. Because of the era, we didn't talk about being gay. It was, just, it was a no-no. It was just something that is over there and it's secret. Roger is a very close friend of mine. I've known he's gay for almost as long as I've known him, but I've never learned what growing up gay was like for him. When I, up until 11, I was in a, a school that had boys and girls together. And then I went to a school that was all male, 1,100 boys. It was a little bit, it was a British public school, public in the British sense, meaning it was a little bit different. It was a bit more like a military run situation. All, all the, the masters wore gowns. There was a lot of tradition, and we had to follow rules, and it was a little bit more disciplined. But there was obviously gay things that happened there, but it wasn't because it was 1,100 boys. It was just, it just happened. It's happened for thousands of years and will continue for thousands more. But keeping gay life secret doesn't make it go away. It just creates confusion about what being gay is. So, Roger, you knew you were gay, but did your parents know as well? They didn't know until I told them when I was about 18 or 19. Again, because of the error, it was a shock. They thought that there was something wrong and it had to get fixed. Uh, they did take me to see a psychiatrist. and I, I don't remember much about the what happened there, but I know we talked for a little bit. Of course, <laughs> they just don't do anything because what can you do and is it advisable? But I remember something, I, I have to jump in. One thing my mother said to me when I was in my 40s and she knew that I'd been out somewhere and she asked me a very strange question that shook me. She said, do you get paid for this? And it was just, I guess the way that they viewed it, it was just one of those things that happened over there and the only reason I would do it was to get paid. It shook me because my mother was very British and very much a lady. But she came up with that question and it just, just floored me. When they grew up, um, their, their whole era, this, it was just one of those things that was over there and it was, it was like nasty stuff that you didn't talk about and it, it, it just had people. It's like doing drugs, okay? You're not supposed to do that, but you do it to have a good time. And, and, and she thought that I was, she thought I was selling myself. 
Roger's mother was never capable of understanding him. She believed that being gay was something other than it actually is. To me, it sounds like she was trying to understand why he was gay, but she approached it in the same way the rest of her generation did. She was searching for meaning where none could be found. Roger, did your family's attitudes make it difficult for you to accept yourself and come out? No, I accepted it myself 100%. And I remember I was in the Boy Scouts, and I used to look at the guys in my pack and, you know, find someone that was attractive and find parts of their body that was attractive, and I used to look at it. It was just always, for me, it was always very normal. Well, I'm the only child, and at the t- I think, yes, at the time, I think I was still living at home, and I just felt it was the appropriate thing to do. So I, I, remember, I remember telling my dad, actually, we went out for a drive in the car, and I told him. It was something I don't think that they ever accepted or really fully understood. But I'm the only only child, and we had we were very close uh, right until the to, to the end until they died in their nineties. Uh, so we were always very very close. Uh, it was a very loving family, but it was just something that they didn't understand. Why did they not understand? I think it was just the error. People were. They, of course, they grew up in the twenties and thirties, and it was again, it was something that was subliminal and submissive. And it was just in the background, and I just, it was just something that you didn't deal with. I think at the time I just wanted them to know, just in case something ever happened. And don't forget, at that point, people used to get arrested for being gay, particularly in London. There, there, there was a term called opportuning, and if you were cruising in a park and you were arrested by an undercover officer because you approached them, you were thrown in jail. I mean, there were charges, mate. Opportuning was not exclusive to Britain. It was common in every Western country. Cops would hide in bathrooms at clubs or stake out bars or patrol cruising spots. I mean, where else are they going to find gay men to arrest? When Roger moved to Canada at the end of the 60s, he still had to be careful about who he approached and where he went. I, again, when I sort of came out in a big way, sort of, I was working in Toronto and uh, one of my colleagues and I used to talk and he was bisexual, I think, but, but he, we used to talk and, and, and he was kind of like a big brother to me. And uh, he, we used to meet at the coffee bar at the coffee breaks and lunchtime and just chat about stuff. And I backed up enough courage to go to my first gay bar, which was on Young Street, 511 Young Street. And I, I called it a bar. It was non-alcoholic because at that time, I think drinking age was 21 and we were 17, 18, 19-year-olds. I remember standing outside and being very nervous to go in for the first time. I walked back and forth a few times and then I saw quite a, a nice-looking young man ran across the road and went down the stairs into the establishment. And I thought, well, if he can go down there, I can. So I did. And I think the entry fee was $2. And it was all disco music in that time. Because this is the 70s. So it was Donna Summer and that, that Troit music. And we just used to go down there and we'd drink Coke, lemonade and stuff and, and dance. And they'd have shows. They'd have female impersonator shows. I think it was about 11.30, they'd have a show for about an hour. 
uh, and then we'd meet people that we were interested in. And, and the night would go from there. And there were obviously gay bars on Young Street. There was, there was a couple of them, but they were a bit more scary for me because they were older guys for me in their late 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, and they were a bit scary for me. So, so Roger, what did the community look like back then? There really wasn't a, not like it is today. I mean, obviously, there were, I had friends and we went to parties and there were there were gay bars and there were sort of cliques and groups. But I didn't don't think we kind of called it and looked at it as we do today. It was it was still it was still sort of subliminal. Certain times of the year it became more public. I remember Halloween was always a big deal at the St. Charles, which was one of the one of the bars. The St. Charles used to have people in their twenties and up to sixties, seventies, eighties. I mean, it was just a hangout for for guys to go and have a have a beer and and to maybe meet somebody. And at Halloween, they'd some of them would dress up and there'd be cars parked outside and taxis dropping people off in drag and it was a bit like it was party time but it was only a, only a few times a year that that sort of happened halloween being one of them yeah i remember one guy i saw in, in, in full full drag with hairy arms and hairy legs tattoos low low cut dress and wig makeup glasses and, uh, he was he was just prancing around he was a truck driver and he was walk. He's walking very butch, but he was dressed up like a lady. <laughs> it, but it was fun. It was just fun, right? It was nothing. It, was, it wasn't nothing serious. It was just having a good time. The St. Charles was an extremely popular place for gay men when Roger lived there. Halloween was almost like what Pride is today. It basically turned into a block-wide street party, and it attracted a lot of notice from the public. This attention was one of the few times people would actually talk about gay people, but they continued to be stereotyped by the media. Well, of course, as far as the public is concerned, the only people that they really become aware of are the more outrageous, the people that dress up, are a little bit more effeminate. I mean, as we all know, that there are gay people who are effeminate, and there are some that are very, very masculine. Hockey players, football players. I mean, there's that whole spectrum. And I think the general public in general only really notice the ones that they can see are gay and acting gay. Obviously, gay pride is one of those times when they, they get to see the community. And if they drive down the, the streets in the city where they live, where there are gay bars, they see people hanging around outside. But generally, I don't, I don't think a lot of people, people have friends in their communities that are gay that they don't even know. I mean, I myself, I don't make it obvious, but I don't hide it either. I've been very fortunate being surrounded in my profession. Most of my colleagues and clients know we don't talk about it, but it's just accepted and they accept me for who I am and, and, and for what I know and what I can do. This is part of the reason why Roger's mother never understood him. He doesn't wear his sexuality the way some other people do. It doesn't make him wrong or right. It just makes him him. This is one of the things I love about Roger. It's how confident he is in himself. He knows who he is, and he's willing to be himself. But Roger, were you asked about your romantic life? Not really. And when it did, it was because people that I knew and knew me, and it was accepted, and there was really no need to talk about it. They had their lives and their families, and, they, and, and I had my community and my friends and my relationships, and it was... It was just kept aside. We didn't uh, 
didn't elaborate on it. Roger, was homophobia a problem that you felt you faced? It was never something really that I saw, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, we know that there are people out there that were anti-gay and anti-homosexual, but I was never really privy to any of that. And again, I think prob probably because I kept private and to myself, I was never exposed to people outside that would be vicious against it. It became a little bit more of a concern in the early 80s when HIV came out. It was something that nobody at the time, we didn't understand what was going on. We didn't know what was happening. It became known as the gay disease or the queer disease. And at one point, even, it was suggested it was caused by poppers. And they, but they didn't know where it was coming from. And that was even suggested that maybe that's what's causing it. Now, of course, today we know what HIV is caused by and how to be protected against it. But for the first few years it circulated, nobody knew what caused it, just that gay men had an extremely high chance of catching it. In some ways, it's reminiscent of the early days of COVID, when we didn't understand the virus. For all you knew, shaking hands with someone could be enough to catch it. No. Uh, I mean, even within the community, I mean, it was called the, the queer disease. And it became, as I mean, I lost several friends, or I know several people that, that, that died of it. And we didn't really know what was causing it. So it was a bit like, you know, actually, that's a good analogy of using COVID because we were obviously taught to be protective and to, to watch ourselves, to, to take protection. And it be, sort of started to become apparent it was caused through anal intercourse and, and, and that connection. But at the time, we didn't know it was caused. It could have been caused by kissing. We didn't. Nobody really knew initially. And then once, once we found out, then we sort of took took care. I was very fortunate I managed to avoid it, even though I was reasonably pr promiscuous in that era. What are you giggling at? <laughs> Trying to compete with Roger for the boys' attention back in the day would not have been easy. I don't doubt for a second that he's a popular guy. <laughs> Roger, how did AIDS change the public's opinion of gay men? I think we were just looked at uh, but as I said, it was called the gay disease. So people used to avoid contact like we do with, with, with COVID right now. But I think over a number of months, it became apparent that it was more within the community and caused and cycling around within the community in the, in the bathhouses and in the, in the bars where people were, were meeting and, uh, and tricking, having one-off sex and, and moving on. Uh, it became apparent that that was where it was was brewing. And then I think the public itself stopped being frightened of it because they knew that unless they had sexual connection with you, they're not likely to pick up the disease. Except people, of course, that are bisexual, and then it started to be injected into the heterosexual community. I think it was being passed on by people that were, were playing both sides of the field. So we talked a lot about the relationship between the straights and the gays, but I'm curious about gay life before AIDS. Roger has mentioned his school boyfriends, but these boyfriends sound like a more casual relationship than committed ones. Roger, what was the dating scene like and where did you fit into it? I think probably in my youth, there was more a prevalence of meeting various different people and not necessarily settling down. I mean, pe people did have relationships, 
But in my case, it was more uh, casual. I don't think I was ever really looking for a relationship, to be honest. I mean, I had my career. Even when I moved to Vancouver in 1974, so I was 24 at that time. Vancouver at the time was quite different from Toronto. Obviously, the size of Vancouver was smaller in that era compared to Toronto. But there was quite a community. And I, of course, when I came here for my job interview, obviously, the first thing I wanted to find out was where to go. I had my meetings in the daytime and I was in Vancouver for a few days. I wanted to go and see what the community was like. And it wasn't quite as easy in that, those days. It's just before the internet, of course. So you had to go by finding uh, magazines and newspapers to find out where the ads were and find out where to go. And not knowing Vancouver, I had to call a cab and say, take me to, I can't remember what the name of the bar was now, but it was somewhere down on Seymour. So I wanted to go and check out the community and see who, he, see who was around. Searching through magazines and ads sounds like a slog compared to the ease of Grindr and Google today. So Roger, were your friends casual like you or did they have relationships? Oh yeah, I had I had friends in even in Toronto. Uh, I had a good friend, Jerry, who actually went through a number of different partners while I was, uh, well, I knew him. One of them did die of HIV, uh, Claude, uh, but he met a couple of different people after that. So, no, there were people that had relationships. I, I don't think I was not looking for one, but I wasn't actively looking for one either. I moved away from home when I was 18 and I in Toronto and lived there for a while. And then, of course, when I moved to Vancouver, I was left my family at home and I was living in an apartment on English Bay. Uh, so, I, no, I had every opportunity to stay with someone if it happened, but I don't think I was really looking for it. And I certainly never met anybody that I wanted to spend my a long time with. But I think today, interesting enough, because we have more of an open society, I think people that are that go both sides of the fence, I think there's more opportunity for them to, to investigate that because it's a little bit more acceptable. In the past, they would have pushed it underground. Nowadays that they might decide, hey, maybe I'll try it once in a while or I'll live both, both lives. I won't tell my girlfriend that I'm seeing guys, but I think there's more opportunities now because it's more available. Roger, how do you think gay life has changed over the decades? I think for the middle of the road person, life is obviously more acceptable and more you can be you can relax because it is more accepted and understood. I, I think that people that are at the other end of the spectrum maybe maybe are a little bit more effeminate. I mean, we have these different words now that we use lgbtq2 plus some of it i don't know really know what it means myself or or understand it to be perfectly honest with you so i think if you're a little bit more off the, the, the center direction if you will i think you probably have a little bit more hard, harder time because it's more obvious and louder we now use the word gay, which is a little softer, if you will. It's a little bit more a nicer word to use, and it means you have a good time, I guess. I guess that's where it originated. But in my youth, we I was a queer, so I don't really understand today what in the, in the LGBTQ realm, what a queer is different from what I am myself. I, I just don't understand that difference. To me, a queer person is like an umbrella term. All gays are queer, but not all queer people are gay. Yeah, but you see, I mean, I tend to look at uh, gay women. Oh, well, there we go. I call them gay women because they're gay. I'm gay. It means that you you, you tend to be attracted to people of your own sex. Uh, I guess that was what 
originally a queer meant because you you were different. Now we, as I said, we use a nicer word of gay. But I, you know, if I look, if I see a lesbian, I say, well, they're gay. This is why I don't really understand all these different, why the necessity for these different descriptions. And now I know, I know that there are people that are bisexual and transsexual. I mean, I, I understand. In fact, when I was in my teens, I had a friend that did transgender. Dennis became Denise. And I don't, I, I lost track of him or her. Uh, I don't really know whatever happened, but at one point he was a was a friend, and there was a, a sexual encounter I had with him. But I know that he did transgender. The necessity comes from the spectrum. Gay and straight are terms for opposite ends of a binary system, but in the full spectrum of sexuality, that scale doesn't always apply. As we continue to explore sexuality and gender, new people will join the community. And not understanding every aspect of the community is normal. It's constantly evolving. And as long as we're aware we don't understand, then we're able to remain open to being taught. Roger, do you think that coming out changed you? I don't think that I've changed at all. Again, I, I, I didn't make it obvious. At the same point, I didn't try to hide it. I was just me. Fortunately, all of the people that I met and worked with professionally or socially took me for what I am. I mean, I'm with a theater group now, and a lot of the, the associated people that I've been with for three or four years, I never speak about a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I just don't talk about it. And I, I, to be honest, they've never really been asked. Like I said before, Roger is a confident person and knows who he is. He's able to live his dream of just being himself, and the people he surrounds himself with don't pressure him to be anyone else. Roger and I have a mutual friend named Bev. She is a perfect example of a great ally and friend. Bev obviously knows, but we've never talked about it. There's been never any need to. She accepts me for who I am. I accept her for what I am. She's met, she's introduced me to her family. Great. We socialize. But it's never been explored because there's not really any necessity to do that. And in my community where I live, uh, I live in a building that's probably 30% gay people living in there. I just, it's just a guess. But nobody, nobody flaunts, flaunts it around or nobody really talks about it. It's just I live here and I live with this person. I they live over there with that person. Nowadays, it's it's not talked about because, well, if, if you're gay, well, so what? It doesn't matter. They, the, the guys next door are gay. So what? It doesn't, doesn't mean, mean anything. As long as they don't have loud parties and they don't, you know, parade around in drag in the hallways, who cares? Roger is a lucky guy, and he knows it. To watch the world transform from arresting gay people to their celebration and inclusion is incredible. But Roger, did you ever think this is what the future would be? I don't think we ever really thought about the future and what would ha how things would evolve. Again, as I say myself, I've always felt that I was this way and I was who I am. And people accepted me and because of who I was and what I could do with them and how we, we got along together. I don't think I ever really explored one way or the other. I just kept it to myself. Roger is not just some gay guy in his spare time, though. He's a passionate man with a deep love for the arts and has done creative work his whole life. 
Yes, I've been very, very, very fortunate in respect that I spent my whole career in the performing arts. I started, I wanted to direct television drama is what I initially wanted to do. And I got a job at the CBC in Toronto. And in that era, they allowed you to go and take extra schooling. Took some courses at Ryerson, took television arts and explored my way around and was editing film for the CBC. And so I was making creative decisions and ended up in the music business through a series of situations I was in interested in music. And because of my technical background with film, I was able to, to help recording studios record work to picture, which in that era needed to be done with celluloid film as opposed to videotape and, and sound files that we use today. It was a transition from cutting media into recording media. At the same time, I was doing stage and theater, so I was able to express myself and my, my creativity. And I'm still spending my days in my 70s recording music sometimes when I get the opportunity, running my own studios, making creative decisions, and living a creative life back on the stage as well. And that's, that's, that's who I am. I'm accepted and valued and looked at, and uh, that's, that's wonderful. And at some point, I'm going to have to hang it up, but I don't want to do that yet. What would I do? Sexuality is just one piece of who we are. It doesn't define us or require an explanation. It just is. It helps us meet people and form connections, but so do our careers and hobbies. To live a full and happy life, we have to be able to do all of it our own way. Thanks for listening. New episodes are released weekly. 